Welcome to Code Grays, an episode-by-episode recap of Grey's Anatomy. My name is Teresa Rosado. And I'm Megan Totsky. And join us for episode four of season two, Bring on the Pain. Bring the pain? I think it's just bring the pain. Wu-Tang Clan, either way. Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> Which I am psyched about. Not what I was expecting when I looked up... <laughs> Who wrote this song? Let me tell you, it's not going to be what our listeners are expecting either when I drop it into just random points of our podcast. Oh, great. Just to see if you're paying attention. <laughs> I came to bring the pain, hardcore from the brain. Let's go inside my astral plane. Find out my mental, based on instrumental. Um, episode four. Wait, is it episode yes. four or five? I think it's episode five, dude. No, oh, it's episode five. <laughs> great. It's fine. It's fine. Just, it's episode five, everyone. <laughs> I read on the internet that this two, so I don't know which one was considered to be the season one finale now because I read that this one was actually considered the season one finale. Really? And I have to say that that would make a lot more sense than the other option, which is like yeah. episode two where nothing happened. Nothing at all happens. This where one at a least... lot happens this episode. Yeah, this actually does make sense for a season finale, right? Because we get a little bit of closure with Yang and Burke because she's mm-hmm. gone through the pregnancy and miscarriage but then it leaves kind of a satisfying cliffhanger with meredith and derek where she's sort of, i don't know i think that that makes yeah that makes plus more you sense. get plus you get a kind of you get a little bit more information on ellis and the chief but then you get kind of a cliffhanger with them too like wait right what happened at the carousel you know yeah yeah and also some more development with izzy and alex yes you know like yeah. the, the the arc is just a little bit further along for everybody yeah makes yeah. sense that would have been a f- i am a huge fan of the season one finale but as is but uh this one this one would have been good too we wouldn't have rejected it we would not have <laughs> as we would have episode two <laughs> yeah <laughs> we start out the episode um in in like a storm a crazy midwestern doesn't ever happen in Seattle storm. Yeah, I was surprised. So. I've never been to Seattle, and so I was surprised to see that. So can you tell me, like, it, that just doesn't happen? It doesn't storm it doesn't, there? I mean, it's not that it doesn't storm, but we so rarely get, in Seattle, we so rarely get, like, mega storms with thunder and lightning. That and put out power. I know this because I have an incredible phobia <laughs> of yeah. thunderstorms. Yeah. And one of the things that I really loved in Seattle was sort of the lack of of thunder and lightning storms. Hmm. So when so, they do happen, people kind of get excited. So it's just know. rain? Yeah, just it's just rain and it's, you know, it's not even it's not even like rainstorms so much as just a ever-present drizzle. Huh. You know, it just drizzles for 3 or 4 days and then you get a couple of days of sunshine and then it drizzles again. Like the thing that I that I like about Seattle, this is kind of ruining the perception of Seattle, which is that it's miserable, it rains all the time, which I think people in Seattle like to mm. perpetuate as a myth mm-hmm. <laughs> to keep people out. Not the friendliest city. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's 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 never unbearable. Like like the rain takes you to a point where you think you can't stand another minute of overcast, soggy weather. And then the sun the sun comes out and it's so beautiful and the sound is gorgeous and the mountains are spectacular and Mount Rainier is just this giant, you know, gorgeous reminder of our mortality. And you're like, oh, oh, that's okay. I'm good. I'm re-energized. And then, you know, 48 later, 48 hours later, it starts raining again. But you you're you're ready for it. You got your emotional break a little bit. I feel like that was a nice little meditative piece. I think I feel more centered now. <laughs> it was nice. You're so welcome. We should start every I've been in Montana for like a while. Your, so. Yeah. Well, next week you can tell us about Montana. A little bit withdrawal. Center us all before we start our episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting to me that it's a misrepresentation of Seattle. Also, I mean, also because the, the power at the hospital goes out and it becomes clear yeah. that the chief did not buy a generator. But I also just sort of think that that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, like, Agreed. That, that, that a rainstorm in Seattle is, is taking down the hospital or is taking out the power. I don't know. I just I it's a and that the hospital didn't have a backup generator. Yeah, I just <laughs> like <laughs> that's humiliating, right? <laughs> it's super. It's one in a series of humiliating turns of events for Seattle Grace, yes. where it's just like, maybe the chief should retire. Like, right? Maybe, maybe he has lost a step. Yes. 
that's certainly how it feels. <laughs> so the uh, the lack of power sort of affects a few different patients that we have here. Uh, we have Henry Lamott, right, who's got the herniated disc. Oh, should we? Do, yeah. Should we do a summary? Oh yeah. Oh shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's right. You could have gotten away with one. I know. <laughs> But no, now you're going to do a summary. <laughs> I couldn't get my groove with the cases, and that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice try, Tops. Uh, you played yourself. I did. DJ Khaled. <laughs> I don't really understand who he is or what he does. I just want to appear with it. Three, two, one. Go. All right, so there's a guy who's got a herniated disc, and he's allergic to all pain medication, so he has to watch porn for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as a form of pain management. Uh, the power goes out in the hospital, which leads to Yang having to actually narrate porn for him. There's a Hmong woman who has a spinal tumor that her dad won't let her operate until she's been seen by a shaman. There's an old lady with a broken heart because her soulmate died or some shit like that. Uh, George performs open-heart surgery in an elevator. Meredith tells Derek that she loves him and asks him to pick her, choose her. Her, love her. Stop. That's Stop. basically it. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I thought you did well. I just got really hung up on the guy who watches porn all the time. On the porn guy. Which is where I think yeah. we should start. Which is understandable because it's infuriating. It really is. You know, I don't know if you felt this way, but I don't think that the writing is as good in this episode. Was no. that just me? No. No, I saw your note about that, and I was like, yes, you, that is spot on. The writing is trying a, just a little bit, maybe too hard. Yeah, like, some of the lines are pretty forced, and I just, I don't know, which is funny, because I don't actually dislike this episode. This episode makes me quite angry in a lot of different ways, and I think that there's some frustrating things that happen, but I don't dislike it. You know, I got kind of excited. I was like, oh, it's Heart in the Elevator, yeah. and it's, you know, the Hmong oh, woman same. and things like that, <laughs> that I, got, I get excited for this episode. It's not boring. But I, it's the monologue yeah, episode. Yeah, and it's the monologue episode. But I, I don't really think the writing's very good, just as a disclaimer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I no, I, I agree. I think so. So it's interesting that I think of this as kind of the seminal season two episode, even mm. though it's only episode four yeah. of a 22 episode season. They have a full order for this season. Right. Uh, but I think of this in the Super Bowl episode, which I think is also season two. The Super right? Bowl episode. It was the one that uh, premiered after the Super Bowl. Yep, that is this the, episode. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, the Code Black. Code Black. Which is now a far inferior medical program of its own. Um, <laughs> don't watch it. Not worth it. Neither is Night Shift. I've done a survey of the medical landscape oh, for TV. And Any it's of them worth it? Not good. No. Okay, great. Just going to stay the course then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I think of this episode and that Super Bowl episode as like the yes. the turning point episodes for me with Grey's Anatomy, yes. which is funny be because, of course, now we watch this back and I'm like, yeah, the writing. Yeah. Actually kind of shaky. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just feels it feels almost like it was written by someone else or co-written. I don't know. It just feels off to me. Well, should we since we're both irate about porn guy, Hen yeah. Henry Lamont, which is yeah. one of my favorite men's names. Henry. So that's frustrating to me. Love yes. the name Henry. Henry has a herniated disc, and as we talked about in the summary, uh, he, he's allergic to pain medicine, I think. <laughs> and supposedly. a herniated disc is very painful, right, supposedly. And since he's allergic to all pain, uh, I'm sorry, to all pain medicine, they're exploring sort of different tracks of pain management with him. And he comes into the hospital, and Bailey walks in with the interns, and he's got the TV on, and you can hear audio of sort of stereotypical porn. And he's just sort of deadpanned up, and his wife is in the corner in her, like, little sweater, and she's knitting. And the interns walk in with Bailey, and Alex says, or somebody says, is that porn? And Bailey says, what? And they all look up, and of course, he's sitting there watching porn. And he's not doing anything vile you know he's not masturbating or re really reacting in any way he's watching it as if he's watching sort of a cooking show you know <laughs> just sort of like deadpan looking at the screen and he says that it, it helps manage his pain and it's <laughs> I do really love that particular scene because it's very funny to watch them all watching porn <laughs> together it's because it's watching porn is not something that you like basically ever do <laughs> Like other than by yourself or with somebody you're very yeah very or with your to. intimate partner, <laughs> right? So it's like eight people in a room watching Dirty Naughty Nurses Four, <laughs> and what's funny to me this is a very specific thing, but Bailey <laughs> kicks Alex out immediately. <laughs> she looks at Alex and she says, "Get in the hall!" Like he's a 
dog <laughs> and kicks him out, but does not kick out George, who is also standing right there. And I don't know why. I, think, I just think it's like a tiny little metaphor for how everybody thinks of George, yes. <laughs> which is not manly, not masculine, you know, sort of one of the girls right, the in a lot of ways. continuing emasculation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. George which is like one part frustrating, and but it's George, so it's also, but also an effective for kind of joke. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I, I, I would really love for you. I struggle when I watch this, that this case makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, there's it's it goes on throughout the entire episode and Yang sort of gets tasked with this case. And she has a frank conversation with the wife later on. Are you OK with this? I couldn't understand how you could ever deal with this. And the wife is like, I love it. You know, it takes his pain away and it takes my he takes my pain away or some shit like that. And I it the whole case just makes me very uncomfortable. And I really was struggling to articulate why. I think that it's the issues with porn, it's the issues with how they're treating him, with how he treats other people. But I had a really hard time sort of articulating it beyond that. And I would really love for you to just sort of walk us through how you deal with this case. Because I think that it's, I think it's going to speak to our listeners. And it like really, really spoke to me. Yeah. So would you, would you walk us through it a little here? Yeah, sure. I, so I want to start off by saying that I, I am not an anti-porn crusader whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, porn has its time and its place. And there are a lot of debates sort of in in feminist circles about whether whether porn can have a place in feminism and I I kind of stand on the side that says yes you know that I don't think yeah. that porn is um, intrinsically anti-feminist right right and I agree so so I want to start start with that that's probably a larger discussion <laughs> feel free to email me and shout at me about it but <laughs> what I found incredibly frustrating about the storyline is that you're dealing with a majority a female medical team treating this treating this man Hen- Henry Lamont and so they walk into the room it's Meredith it's Izzy it's Yang and it's of course Bailey who's the chief resident and presumably is reporting directly to Derek who is Derek Shepard who is the attending on this case and then you have the two men George and Alex mm. and so they walk into this into the setting and are blindsided by this man watching porn as part of his pain management. And we can talk during our medical fact of the week about whether this is even even remotely a strategy for chronic pain management because we're going to have like a come to Jesus <laughs> conversation about that storyline itself. But what bothered me so mm-hmm. much is that as the as the chief resident and the resident on this case, Bailey is clearly upset with this pain management plan and after the scene the sequence with Henry Lamott you know where she says this is this is a hospital we can't have porn in this hospital I'm sure you're very nice people <laughs> it's a really funny scene right it, it's you know you get a lot of good <laughs> moments out of it genuinely humorous moments but then she goes to her mm-hmm. superior Derek who's a male doctor to raise her concerns you know is this a thing you know what porn for pain management you know she's totally incredulous about this and Derek supports the porn as pain management and he makes sure to say I think twice that he's not the prescribing doctor so he's first of all distancing himself from the responsibility for this person's treatment plan which fine whatever Derek if that's how you want to dodge this bullet that's fine you're not technically the prescribing doctor but he is the attending doctor on this case and his <laughs> his employee, right. his chief resident, is voicing concerns about how this made her and her residents feel, right, in, in her workspace. It is her workspace. Mm. And he just kind of scoffs at her, just kind of laughs it off. And it takes not a second, not a moment to consider that a room full of women who are thrust into this situation might feel quite uncomfortable by pornography being played in their presence in a work setting. So in a setting that they've already fought really hard to get into in the first place. But then we're dealing with porn, which oftentimes is degrading Mm -hmm. to women, right? That's undeniable. So God knows what's happening on the screen between the women and between the women and the men that they're almost certainly pleasuring. 
And then it's it's a naughty nurses DVD or something like that. So then it's it's female, it's women performers performing as medical professionals, as actual female medical professionals are looking on and trying to do their goddamn job. And Derek doesn't see anything wrong with this scenario. He doesn't see how that might demean his employees. He doesn't see how that might make them feel unsafe to be around a strange man that they know absolutely nothing about who's just watching porn in his hospital room. And I feel like it leaves us so first of all, it's it's appalling that he's so cavalier regarding the work environment of the department that he wants to be the chief of, right? Like he wants to right. be chief of surgery and and this is how he treats pretty significant concerns by the women on his staff. Mm-hmm. And then it really Gray's kind of leaves us with two shitty options, okay, for how <laughs> this all happened. The first shitty option, and, and it has to do with the suspension of disbelief. So so can you suspend your disbelief that no one warned, at least Bailey, the chief resident, of this pain man- management plan ahead of time, ahead right. of actually rounding on this guy? So either the attending doctor is an idiot who didn't think to prepare his chief resident about the very peculiar course of treatment that they've decided on, or the attending doctor is just an asshole who did inform his resident in an off-camera conversation that we didn't see, but then blithely disregards her concerns after the fact. So either way, Derek's the worst. I mean, and it, and it's sort of on theme with his character of late, but particularly in this episode where he's incredibly self-involved. You know, like he just cannot see beyond his own selfish life exactly that's you know like because it doesn't bother him it must not bother anyone else you know that like (laughs) because he didn't know bailey was married she must not have been because he doesn't think of her in a sexual way no other man must right (laughs) you know like he just his scope is so narrow and it's just and it's same with and we'll get to it but same with his monologue with meredith you know that like he is so so narrow in this episode and it's just infuriating to watch you know it's hard to and and we'll again we'll get into her monologue as well, but it also is one of the things that makes her monologue so painful and so accurate is that you see what a fucking dick he is, you know. You he's such a painful character to watch lately, and it's it's, you know, they really want him to be this charming guy, and he is to an extent, but it's really I don't know he's a, he's a tough person to love lately. <laughs> yes, you know, from like a deep seated level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like in his personal life he's really difficult to like or love or stand up for and now in his professional life yes he's he's also really difficult to stand up for and well, it just ugh, it, it just really stuck in my stuck in my craw or whatever well, people I th- say. No, I think that's right. I think well I think you pointed out last week that you would never trust Derek Shepard with literally anything except for brain surgery. And now I'm like, well, do we even really trust him with that? You know, do we even really trust him to do the one thing that we did before? You know, it's just, oh, God, it's infuriating. Yeah. And then goes on, of course, to when the power goes out, Christina has to narrate porn to this guy because she realizes that she doesn't test and sees that he has an elevated pulse and that the porn is actually working to subside his pain. And so she sits in a bed next to him and narrates porn, like tells him, you know, a dirty story. And it's just such a gross, we both pointed out that it's just such a gross misuse of her surgical talent and her education. You know, I just think it's really, it's just, oh, it's a, it's really a tough to watch. It's supposed to be funny and there is a piece of it that's funny watching her do yeah. that. But it's really, I don't know, I have, a, I have a really tough time with that, which I think is on theme with the things you were saying before is that it's, there is no acknowledgement to how wrong it all is. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just it's so frustrating to see, you know, the most confident the most competent surgeon used in that way to um not orally pleasure, but <laughs> verbally. <laughs> but verbally kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> pleasure or stimulate her her patient and it's it's degrading to her, even though, you know, it is funny, right? Like there's something funny about the um, the sort of commitment that Yang has to her surgical career. Yes. You know, that yes. she's willing to go this far. But there's also something really sad about um, a woman's commitment to her surgical career that she has to go that far. And that nobody's standing up for her. <laughs> yeah. No one's no one's standing up for her. Bailey even walks by and 
Christina just kind of shrugs at her and Bailey, you know, rolls her eyes and keeps walking as though Yang's at fault right. for <laughs> right. for what she's doing when, you know, some other older attending, male attending with power is the one who actually prescribed this particular strategy. She's just carrying it out. It's doubly insulting because it's it's another naughty nurses story. And so he was watching a, a DVD on naughty nurses um, before the power went out. And then Yang decides to go ahead and tell another story about a trio of nurses. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like Grays could not could not be more obvious in their disdain for the nursing community. <laughs> Seriously. It's, come on, guys. And we're going to come to terms with that in a few episodes here. Yes. Just how shitty they're. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> getting all worked up yeah i know right <laughs> as someone who's like made fun of a lot of nursing friends in my day, right we know a lot of nurses <laughs> i'm just like come on gray's anatomy you know be better yes this is that's just absurd well so. good segue is that we went to school at a college which is very famous for its nursing program and we also had a very high population of Hmong women at our college and in in the community where we went to college mm-hmm. which is something nice else transition. that comes up in this that episode um <laughs> thanks thanks <laughs> just came to me <laughs> so we have a character whose name is Anna Shu she is a young woman who comes in I mean we're sort of I think supposed to believe that she's maybe 25 she comes in with some severe back pain, and it turns out she has uh, an ependymoma on her spinal cord, which is a tumor. And it's pushing up against her spinal cord, and she has a very good chance of surviving if they can get it out immediately. Um, otherwise, it will paralyze her. So she's, you know, Derek and Meredith are on the case together, and they, she, essentially her father walks in when they're about to sort of get her ready for for. Uh, pre-op and her father says no and he's this sort of tall you know attractive asian man and he he he's essentially just says no you you you're not you you cannot have the surgery we're going home and it becomes clear that even though she's over 18 that he's the elder they're mung and and she's not to have the surgery so there's a a pretty insufferable line immediately after when derek (laughs) says mung let's find out what that means (laughs) which is (laughs) <laughs> very, very embarrassing for him. So I, I think that we both had some sort of mixed reactions to this to this particular case. They, it turns out that Anna needs a shaman. Her father insists that she needs a shaman because there's a piece of her that's missing. So that her soul has to sort of be cleansed by a shaman in order for her to have the surgery, in order for her to survive the surgery. Yeah, her soul has and, to be brought back. I'm sorry, her soul has to be brought, yes. So I this is sort of a tough case for, for me, at least. I think that... I really like Anna. I like that she's, I think she's kind of a likable character. She and Meredith have sort of a good back and forth. Mm -hmm. She has a moment where (laughs) Meredith starts prepping her for surgery sort of anyway, gives her some morphine and things like that, even though she's asked to leave. And she sort of says to her, you know, we can, we can still do the surgery. You know, you don't have to do everything your father says or something to that effect. And Anna says, white girl cultural divide love. (laughs) And I love that moment because I do think I like Anna. I think she's sort of a rep- I think she is actually representative of mod- modern young Hmong women <laughs> in a way that I think is is sort of it's not condescending towards the Hmong people. I think that it's an opportunity for her to actually teach the doctors something instead of the other way around, which I feel like is often sort of the. I don't know, the narrative that shoved down our throat is that our doctors, I don't know, I I, I, I like her. I don't yeah, like yeah. the overall case. Does that make sense? I don't know if yeah. I'm articulating that. No, I think that's totally fair. I, so, I don't know, I'm less sold on the dad, right? I think that, did you feel the same way about the the dad in this in this particular case? Yeah, I mean, I... I... I want you to kind of get into why why that his characterization falls so flat, but he he's basically you know he's against the surgery uh, on the grounds that they can't you know if they perform the surgery when her soul is still not in her body in her being then she'll die and the only way that they can return her soul to her body is to have a shaman come and perform a ritual to bring to find her soul and bring it back into her. And, and he's, you know, he's, that's it. That's the bottom line. And Derek finds him outside the hospital to kind of try and talk him into surgical intervention. And this guy's standing out there, you know, in the rain, 
puffing on a fat cigar. <laughs> like, it's huge. It's like a banana. Just, just a big ass <laughs> cigar. <laughs> and he's wearing what Derek what Derek describes as a two thousand or three thousand dollars suit. <laughs> and it's just a little bit much. Yeah, you know, it's it is. It's I think that I have a hard time. Anna says to Meredith, uh, you just, she's sort of describing herself as I, I went to college. I was in a rock band. I got my tongue pierced. You know, you don't don't try to tell me what it's like to be a modern person. Like I am a modern person, but I'm part of this ancient religion. And I I, I get it. I get that. And that's a piece that I do appreciate. But I think that where I struggle with the dad is that somehow modern medicine is the divide of what she's allowed to do and what she's not. And I don't mean to sort of project my understanding of a religion that's not my own, but I do think that it's it's tricky, right? That like, why is he, I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's, it's fighting against itself a little bit. It's a little bit of a, um, I feel like it's a little bit, bit of an impasse here where he's trying, they're trying to paint this guy as both a reasonable guy who has a $3,000 suit and smokes cigars and lets his kid be in rock bands, but also unreasonable, right? Unreasonable in that they yeah. won't let him, he won't let his daughter have this life-saving surgery. He insists on his own shaman who's 500 miles away. He's sort of speaking this similar high-class white language with Derek. And I just don't love that. I don't I don't think it particularly supports this representation of the Hmong people that they're trying to get at. And I don't think it's fair to paint him as both unreasonable and reasonable in the same character in such extreme ways. Right. Right. And it also makes him come off as quite callous in regards to yeah. his daughter and her health and her well-being in a way that I don't think is is fair or realistic. You know, I think that... I think that when people make these kinds of choices um, where they don't allow medical intervention based on religious beliefs, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses right. and, and blood transfusions, right. right? Like not even to save to save a life. I don't think that those choices are made puffing on a cigar, right. you know, and just kind of checking your watch, you know, like like there's. Yes there's sadness and there's grief involved in in following through on these beliefs and that's that's not yeah. shown and i wonder if that's part of the falsity of his character or of the characterization of of this family's faith as a whole that you know there doesn't seem to be any grieving for for what they feel you know, they must do according to their That's values. a really good point. I haven't thought about that, but I do think that that does play into just, the, like you said, the callousness of his character, right? And then there's also this piece where at the end of the day, these two dudes are deciding what happens to this young woman. You know, that like Derek and the dad are standing outside making this decision about his daughter. And I don't know, I just have a hard time. It just bothers me. It just bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I give credit where credit is due I'm even though even though Derek is sort of meeting this man in the yeah. kind of like arrogant rich man sort of way he does he does make a provision for their faith and says well you know what we're just gonna have to find a shaman and you know the the father again just just super callously is like ha good luck our shaman is 500 miles away right right <laughs> and and so derek says back to him you know sort of equally snobbish well i've got a helicopter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just want to fast forward through that scene and it's like well taxpayers right. have a helicopter but exactly. go on <laughs> i kept thinking that too you know how much is a chartered helicopter flight to you know, southern Canada, wherever the fuck they're going. <laughs> like, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So you know, it's kind of an obnoxious moment, but I do give him credit for saying, "Okay, how can we work within within this this, this belief?" Faith, yeah. You know, I want to do this thing. I'm not going to be dissuaded from doing from doing this mm -hmm. procedure, but how can I do it in a way that respects where you're coming from? And you know, Derek actually, to his credit, is pretty good about that in most cases because. Yeah. This kind of thing comes up more than once with him, and he's pretty, you know, he's pretty Yeah, flexible. and he, he is, you know, a good doctor who is sort of willing to go that extra mile with the infinite resources of a TV show. As extra 500. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> and I think that it is part of his charm, right, during yeah. this, when he's kind of a difficult character to watch. Where it's we his are only charm sort of, this episode. It's true. It's true. <laughs> God. <laughs> 
So that's and then the, and I do think that it's a nice moment when we watch the healing or the cer- the ceremony go with the shaman is it's kind of a beautiful montage. I think it's a nice scene. I don't know. I like. Yeah, it, it was it was a really nice scene. And, you know, the girl Anna says you'll be able to you'll be able to tell when when my soul comes back into my body, you'll you'll just wait for the ritual. And so you see Meredith kind of outside of the room, but peering through the window and the girl's eyes kind of flutter. She nods at Meredith. And I have to say, it didn't seem like her soul returned to her body. I know. I thought it was. I felt like that. <laughs> she was, talked it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> she, she kind of set a high bar and her <laughs> acting ability was maybe not up to bar. <laughs> talk about verna <laughs> verna bradley really quickly she's kind of a waste of a patient but she really is you know <laughs> verna bradley has stress cardiomyopathy because she was in love with the dude next door and he died like seven years ago <laughs> oh my god i just figured out your death ted count. okay go on i'm sorry <laughs> and essentially she's still she was having an affair so i think we're supposed to feel badly of her but i don't <laughs> Because her hu- husband is like incredibly loving and is yes. very very sweet to her, and I just sort of want to be has like incredible memory. Unfortunately, yeah, for I know, yeah, <laughs> truly. So Ted died, and every year on the day that he died, a bunch of adrenaline rushes into her heart and gives her cardiomyopathy. Uh huh. <laughs> stress cardiomyopathy. Her heart's stressed out. Uh, yeah, and her gets real stressed. And Izzy's like working on the case and is being very diligent and thorough and sort of gathering all the facts and figures out, you know, exactly what happened. And there's this this, this moment where she it's just she and Ver, <laughs> Izzy and Verna and and she says, you have stress cardiomyopathy. It's Ted. Ted is what's wrong with you. And it's, you know, being shoved down our throat in the same way that, you know, Burke with the broken heart a few episodes ago. And but there's this awful moment when Verna says, so what do I do? Like, what's the cure for my broken heart? And Izzy says, <laughs> like, that's her response to this one who actually is having, you know, cardiac, cardiac episodes. episodes. <laughs> she literally says, I don't know the cure to cardiomyopathy in that moment. And I get that she's speaking about something bigger, but like, that's, that's not a good moment for Izzy. <laughs> like, really I get that is. Verna doesn't really give a shit because Ted is dead, but like, ooh, Izzy. <laughs> You could have you could have said literally anything else, but you I don't know. Pressed, you know, like died in exercise. Like, right. <laughs> exactly. I don't. Exactly. I don't know. Leave your husband. Uh, I don't know. Just something that wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> Wait until next year. Yeah. <laughs> right. See you next year. Give have you a the punch car card. ready. I don't right? know. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I have to say about Verna Bradley. <laughs> yeah. No. To be I honest. liked. I liked <laughs> when you said that. <laughs> you know, Q Burt coming in with. And I just, that was such a great visual for me in my mind. Just like Burke <laughs> popping his head in the door. You literally had a broken heart. He <laughs> takes off his out. glasses, wipes a tear away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's um, admirable or incredibly embarrassing that Grey's Anatomy is like <laughs> <laughs> the one show or, you know, the staff is the one group of people who take, you know, broken hearts seriously as a concept they take them literally as a concept everyone else understands that that's that's a metaphorical saying but not Grey's Anatomy not Grey's Anatomy uh let's talk about Hart in an Elevator Oh yeah! Oh man, I don't want to forget so much that. happened this episode. Yes, I know we're, we're getting we're getting close to the bits, but let's let's talk about hurting the elevator. We have for to a talk minute. about Ellis too. So oh yeah, shit. Plus our couples. Fuck. All right, hurting the so elevator. Pete, let's start there. <laughs> Pete is a police officer. Yeah, he, or a firefighter. He's a civil servant who has a gunshot wound to the chest, and Alex and uh, George, of course, are working on him together. They have to take him from the ER up to the surgical floor. And of course, as they're in the elevator, the power goes out. The elevator stops. They cannot get him out. And he's the bullet. Because the chief passed on a generator. Normal normal stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're stuck in the elevator. The elevator is propped open maybe six inches. And Burke can see in, and it's clear that Pete is not doing well, that the bullet has punctured his heart, and his his heart is, he's dying. <laughs> yeah. 
And Burke says, okay, you're going to have to open them up. And nobody is sure about this, you know, possibly least of whom George and Burke. <laughs> and and Burke passes the surgical instruments to Alex, expecting that Alex is going to do it. Because as far as any of us know, George cannot practice medicine. <laughs> and so even George is like, yeah, Alex should do it. You know, Has like, truly not held a scalpel since he almost killed that guy in season one, episode one. Right. <laughs> so... However many episodes of this show there are is how long it's been since George has practiced medicine, <laughs> to be clear. But Alex has recently found out that he failed his boards, his intern boards, or a piece of his intern boards, right. and has is experiencing a bout of um, a lack of confidence. The yips, and one might The say. yips, yes, the yips. Thank you. That's exactly right. And so <laughs> Burke hands him the instruments, and Alex totally freezes. He just totally, totally freezes. But time is of the essence. George takes the tools and and goes for it and performs open heart surgery. I I want you to explain your appreciation <laughs> slash hesitation with this because I think that this is as good as your comparison to Sweet Home Alabama last week. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, late white late night Grays watching is really working out for me. But so George <laughs> is performing this open heart surgery on on Pete and and. Burke is outside of the elevator narrating, you know, step by step what George needs to do next, what to watch out for, make sure not to puncture <laughs> these important <laughs> organs. Um, you know, these are the textures you should feel, et cetera, et cetera. And and he's he's being a very good guide. And so on one hand, I understand that what George has done is impressive. He has completed open heart surgery in an elevator and he's not killed the man. And I think that that is commendable. And it's mm. particularly commendable for George O'Malley, who up to this point has been useless when it comes to medicine or, in fact, any other facet of his being. Yes. But I also do feel kind of like he's kind of like he's painting by numbers or like cooking with blue apron like it just <laughs> it feels it feels like an open heart surgery that counts a little bit less than an actual open heart surgery like with you know Burke's, what I mean with Burke's instructions I feel like you or I could do that surgery <laughs> you know like blue blue apron makes me feel like I can cook anything because <laughs> anyone can read an instruction manual right and so right. I feel like this is not quite as impressive as it as it could have been. So I'm taking a little bit away from from George for this being a blue apron surgery. I appreciate that. And I think that that's that you have a keen eye for that because I think that it's easy. No, I think it's true, though. Like, I think that it's really easy for us to be like, oh, George is a doctor. He does deserve this. But it's also like he didn't do that himself, you know. So it's a, I, I appreciate it. That's a good I think it's an important point. I I can't even I'm constitutionally incapable of even giving George this I know, surgery. I know. I know. <laughs> and Alex just stands there the whole time holding a flashlight, which feels just like a total concession, you know. <laughs> like that's the best light they could get in there is a flashlight. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's a funny image. It's pretty great. Oh, also, before George even starts the surgery, Izzy says to Bailey, she's also right outside the elevator. And I love this. Izzy says in a very concerned whisper, <laughs> he doesn't have the steadiest hands. <laughs> Meaning George. And Bailey just goes, he can hear you. <laughs> that was a great Bailey impression. <laughs> Bailey's so disgusted with her interns this entire episode. It's, it's so such a palpable great. disgust in every moment. It's I, it's so true. I just love it. <laughs> the dark side of the board. Of course, it's the method. Man from the Wu-Tang Clan. I'll be hectic. Let's chat about Ellis. Ellis, Ellis and the chief. Ellis, who is finally being discharged. Yeah. After what seems like a month in the hospital. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I, I, you made the great point that this episode is a direct carryover. Like, yes. no time has passed, which is also true of the next episode, right? So yes. we have a three-episode sequence where it's, it essentially takes place over the course of three days Presumably, right. or it's, it's interesting. I think that was a really so it does feel like Ellis has been there for a long time, but it's it, in reality hasn't. It's probably probably been a, a week, maybe two weeks, right? But right, right. Still kind of a long time. It is still kind of a long time. <laughs> so really, the the important thing about this this case, I think, you know, she's being discharged back to the home, um, the facility where she where she lives, obviously because of the Alzheimer's, and she's still out of it. She's still 
you know, thinking that she and Richard are back in the old days in their affair. And she's trying to convince Richard to convince or excuse me, to leave his wife. Mm. And uh, Richard, you know, Richard is is firm with her that, you know, this this happened 20 years ago or or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And and um, I think that. The chief kind of bringing her back to reality and this our our insight into their relationship that she was willing she was ready to leave Thatcher for for uh, Chief Weber and he was not ready to leave his wife. I give I think it gives us real insight into this the source of all of this rage. Like we've talked for several episodes now about just how angry Ellis is and that it's yeah. a scary anger. It's it's an abusive anger in terms mm-hmm. of her relationship with Meredith, but also in how she's interacted with many of the nurses and doctors and other staff who have had to deal with her. And I think this really gets to the crux of of that rage, which isn't excusing her. But it's an interesting bit of information about her, a bit of context. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I, I like that you connected it back to, first of all, her rage, but also that very last scene where, where she and Meredith sort of interact. And Meredith sort of getting her settled back in the, in the home and, or getting ready to send her off. And uh, Ellis has a moment of, of clarity, right? And she sees, oh, Meredith. And she sees her for her current age, right? Which is presumably in her right. late 20s. Only Meredith, you grew up. I did. It's a shame. It's awful being a grown-up. The carousel never stops turning. You can't get off. Which is just so, so tragic. But there's also, when Ellis looks at Meredith, Meredith says, Mom. And then she pauses and she says, Mommy. And it's this, like, hearing a grown woman say Mommy Mm -hmm. is always sort of unsettling to me because it's so babyish. And, and it's you sort of see their relationship in that in that tiny, tiny, tiny little scene. It's just totally wrapped up that you can see that they have such a troubled love for each other, mm-hmm. you know, and that their lives are so influenced by other people. You know, it's like almost like they can't exist outside of this bad thing that's happened to Ellis. And yeah. it's just troubled their entire their entire relationship and their entire love for each other. And it's just it's just very tragic. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really deeply sad. And and of course, she's she's reflecting on Richard's choice and uh, she she sort of expands on on her comments to Meredith by talking about why adulthood is bad. You know, that it's it never stops. You can't ever get off the carousel. Yeah, it never stops turning. Yeah. And so it definitely it definitely seems like an open ended story that we're not we're not done with Ellis and the chief by any means and yeah. um yeah it just i don't it's just so sad it's <laughs> just, very very sad i just had this moment of like has has she ever said anything kind to meredith ever right in meredith's whole life <laughs> yeah yeah and you can see i don't know you can see just sort of uh, oh it's just i was gonna say a moment of humanity in her in this scene where you see sure. just why she's so mad but i don't even think it is that i think it's just Maybe it's rationale, but it's, I don't know. It's just, she's a really, really complicated, tough character. She's a very, yeah. very much she's a Shonda so character. She's just so consumed. Yeah. 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 Ugh. Ugh. It's really tough. <laughs> let's chat about, uh, let's get maybe Burke and Yang out of the way really quickly. Yeah. Sure. Yes. So they have, uh, Burke and Yang are... It's, it's Yang's first day back. She has just been discharged. It is the day after she has been discharged, and she's full on back at work immediately. She's worried about her lost time, etc. And Burke le- wastes no time making it about him. <laughs> he very quickly says, how are you? And she says, I'm, I'm okay. I'm back on my feet. And he says, okay, how are we? And just demands an answer out of her. <laughs> yes. And she's like, what? I, what? I... You know, and he just totally backs her. He just cannot cut her slack in this episode. And frankly, I think just pushes her into a corner of trying to get an answer of where they are. And this has been his sort of, you know, mission the entire time is to get her to find the relationship. He dumps her and now he's back at it again, you know, demanding an answer out of her. And at the end of the episode, she comes into the on-call room tired and exhausted after her first day back where she not only is dealing with physical and mental exhaustion and emotional exhaustion, but now has to deal with a pushy boyfriend, you know, yeah. who yeah. 
and, and it just makes me mad that she has to deal with Burke and that he can't, he's not supporting her. You know, he's not supporting her on this first day back. He's just being demanding of her. And she says, okay, we're a couple, you know, she sort of defines the relationship for him. She says, I snore, you know, I sort of lists off some facts about herself and says, all right, we're like, if you're in, then I'm in whatever, you know? And I, I don't know. It just, it's, it's just, it just makes me frustrated yeah. with Burke, frankly. It's yeah, it's it's incredibly frustrating, and it's and it's kind of uh, one in a series of sort of troubling, troubling signs from Burke about sort of his his demanding nature. You know, he is his profession is extremely mm. demanding. He he is quite meticulous in the way that he organizes his his life and his in his profession, and and he kind of he he projects that onto his relationship with Yang as well. And, and it's just two very unlike approaches. Yeah. Um, it certainly shapes their chemistry, but uh, I don't know if it's the healthiest thing in the world. And it's yeah. very frustrating to watch. So. No, I agree. And it makes me like kind of dread watching their relationships next steps. You know, that yeah. she's sort of folded herself. She's like twisting herself to fit into his shape the idea that he has and now yeah. they're starting a relationship from that standpoint and I struggle with that and I'm you know it makes me nervous about watching the next steps for them I guess yeah yeah should we do some bits yeah song of the week we disagreed yeah we did disagree I like that song that you picked what song did you pick okay so I picked Don't Forget Me by Way Out West And I picked it. It's the song that plays. It's it's a montage scene when, you know, Izzy is talking to Verna and the ritual is taking place and, and all of this stuff. So it's just kind of all sad things are happening, of course. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. plus one. But it's also just it's it sounds it's an electronic duo with a woman on vocals. Um, Emily Emmett, I believe, was her name. But it sounded a lot like Imogen Heap, who also yeah. did uh, the project Fru Fru, which is a, a band and an album that that I stand by to this day that I just absolutely <laughs> wrecked. I listened to so much. And it just really, really reminds me of that sound. And it's so fitting for this episode and especially the sort of ritual um, that's being performed because it's it's very haunting. It's ethereal. It's just kind of... Yeah, like not of here, I guess. I just think it's very yeah. fitting. I liked it a lot. It's the first song that I've paid attention to in, in a couple of episodes. Yeah, you know, and I think that it sort of serves that purpose of that mid sort of before the very last scenes of the episode. Grey's Anatomy has sort of a, a standard <laughs> format <laughs> or template, I would say. It and it serves that that end of episode montage that happens just before our last scenes, which is always effective. I think that they do a good job generally picking montage songs, which actually becomes sort of a, a, a point of teasing right. <laughs> or commentary. They're too Anatomy. good at it. <laughs> I picked the Tegan and Sarah song at the very end, uh, Not Tonight. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually in their older work, which I've I'm sort of a dedicated fan to their their album The Con, which is not <laughs> Tegan and, Fer- and Sarah Diehards do not really recognize that as their best work, but I love but that we album. Do. So this is actually so. we do we do. <laughs> so that's really what matters. Anyway, not tonight is sort of some of their earlier work, and it's when their voices are very sort of. They sound really processed almost, which I know is part of their style, but they sound like Meredith to me. <laughs> like, they sound like, you know, it's it's the scene of her drinking in the bar alone at the end waiting for Derek to show up. And it's sort of a pathetic scene, but they, I don't know, there was just something about it where I was like, oh man, the three of you could all just drink tequila together. <laughs> they just all have a similar quality to their voice of just sort of tragic and sad and probably smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> And I also, the, you're reminding me of the musical episode, just made my skin crawl. Just. Yeah, so just just so you know, we're eventually going to hear 
um, Ellen yeah. Pompeo's voice, and I just want you to know we'll that give it's, you, like, it's not great. <laughs> yeah. When you get to the musical episode many years down the road, just go ahead and plug your ears for Ellen Pompeo's singing voice. She knows it. We know it. Everyone knows it. Okay. <laughs> Death tally. <laughs> Ted. <laughs> to which I responded, who? <laughs> But that's right. Teresa literally didn't remember who Ted was. No. And in fairness, he did not die in this episode. But I just think that that storyline is so stupid (laughs) that I just, I don't know. I had to count him. Yeah. He's the only one who dies. Ted Ted from five years ago. So (laughs) good catch. Uh, 007. I, I, I gave, I gave it to Karev. Wait, mm-hmm. did I? Yeah, I gave it to Krev because he can't perform in the elevator. Yeah. <laughs> he can't perform. <laughs> he can't get it up for Pete. Yep. <laughs> he can't. He can't. And he's embarrassed, and I think even he knows it. You know, I think that that sort of him, that scene, that sort of role reversal of George having the confidence and Krev not having the confidence is a very, I mean, it's it's almost shoved down our throat how obvious it is. But I think that there was a, sort of a, a transition of the 007 in the elevator, right? That that George was sort of taking the reins of the surgery and that Krev sort of knew he was the 007 in that moment. Yeah. And I think you're right. It is sad. Like, it's a sad thing, but yeah. I don't know. Well, and I think a kind of a sticking point for me, you know, I gave it to Karev, too. He he choked. He choked. And that's that's it. Yep. At the end of the day, he choked. Yep. But I, yep. I don't understand why the assumption was made that, <laughs> I mean, I do understand because George is useless, but like, Everyone was waiting on Karev to take the scalpel. Yeah. And I feel like that was an unnecessary amount of pressure. Two doctors yeah. of the same ability, of the same experience level, were in that elevator with Pete. I don't know why it had to have been Karev, you know, like just because Karev didn't take them, you know, didn't take the surgical instruments doesn't necessarily mean anything. Of course, in this case, it does. But I, anyway, right. just a slight defense of Alex Karev here. Right. Well, I think it's a transference, right? That it's like a transference of the power and the confidence. Yeah. That's just like that was unnecessary. Yeah. I, I totally agree. But he choked nonetheless, yeah. and thus he's the uh, double. Sorry, seven. you choked. <laughs> and similarly, the chief resident. I guess I had to give to George because he. I mean, he does a good job. He doesn't kill the guy. He finds the hole, plugs the hole. You know, performs open heart surgery if a blue apron open heart yeah. surgery. Yeah. <laughs> but. I don't know. I, I, I accept the grain of salt with which we give that to George. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to George as well and and I'm just I'm just not gonna be enthusiastic a, about it though. It's sort of a like at a boy moment. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like Yeah. Way to go. You know. Are we doing Karev of the Week? Karev of, yeah. So I, I I took a stand. There's kind of a subplot here involving Alex and Izzy, where Alex was supposedly oh, yeah. a giant dick to Izzy on their on their first date, and then he doesn't kiss her at the end of the date. He pulls away when she goes in for the kiss. But he says, and quite genuinely says, that he had a nice time, which she's kind of taken aback by. But basically, the date happens off screen, and Izzy, right. I think, had extremely high expectations going into this their first date. Karev has just gotten the news that he didn't pass his intern exam and has to retake it. And I just feel like, was he really a dick or was was he just quieter than usual? Like, was he really not into her or yeah. was he just nervous and didn't go in for a kiss? Because it seems to <laughs> me that his body language isn't one, isn't him being a dick. He's He just mm. seems nervous around her. And I don't know how she's reading that as as dickishness. So, yeah, I like your anyway. point. It's hard to trust Izzy's reporting skills. Yeah, <laughs> you she's know, an like her unreliable narrator is, like, is what I'm saying. She's an unreliable source, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we know that Alex. I don't know. I, I wish that he had just told Izzy that he wasn't that he failed his. I don't know. Yeah, but of course he couldn't because <sighs> of, of his own hangups, and and yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. dickish, but it is a certain kind of immaturity or. Um, right. That is typically you know, more characteristic of, yeah. of Burke and Derek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which brings me to my crev of the week, which was Derek, right? You ultimately I landed did. on oh, Derek yes. too, right? Oh, I did yeah. land on Derek. You know, he's just he's just an ass in this episode. He's incredibly myopic. He mm, is good word. Cannot see the scope of issues going on in his life, in the hospital's life, and the people he cares about, you know, in the lives of the people he cares about. He 
when he talks to Bailey at the end, the, the married thing, when he just cannot understand that she's married because he doesn't see her, as you said, as a sexual being. <laughs> and yeah. so he just assumes that she must not be married. And at the very beginning, when he says to Meredith, he's following her around and she's yelling at him and she says, what, what do you want to say? And he has some dumb line about how like, oh, I, I, I didn't actually have anything prepared. Usually you just yell at me. Yeah. And he, I, he's just so fucking stupid. Yes. That I just think that he just sort of treats people not well in this episode. And then I we can talk for a second about his monologue to Meredith, because I think that you had a good point about that. Um, she's asking him about the divorce papers earlier on in the episode. And he sort of loses his temper a little bit with her mm-hmm. and, and says... I, you know, I'm married. I was married for 11 years. That's 11 Christmases and, and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm entitled to a moment of uncertainty with this. And I think that we, I, I don't know, I, I have a hard time with that monologue because I think that when he says to her, I'm entitled to a moment and he's really yelling at her, you know, he's really, you know, reaming into Meredith and says, I'm entitled to a moment and a little understanding from you would be nice. And I like, yes. It is difficult to get divorced, and that's sad, and that's a big deal. But when he says, I'm entitled to a moment, I sort of want to be like, you had a lot of moments. <laughs> yeah. you, had a, you, had, you had months of moments to think about this. You know, like, where did you think this was going to lead when you walked out yes. on your wife? For good reasons, mind you, but you moved across the country, bought a piece of land, and started a new job. You know, was divorced not and started sleeping and dating and seriously, somebody knew, you know, did you not think this was going to lead to divorce? Right. So I understand that he's at a sort of an impasse, but like a moment (laughs) you've had three months to sort of think about this. Yeah. I mean, I gave him credit because he he's articulating his feelings, which, as he said, he is entitled to. Right. He's he's entitled to have these feelings and he's it's okay and it's acceptable. And I would encourage him to feel confused. That's human. And in so in his it's twofold. He's also so he's recognizing his confusion, but he's also talking about his confusion with an appropriate person for a change, which is also Mm -hmm. a step in the right direction. He's directing his his anger at Meredith, which I don't think is particularly helpful, because if there's someone who is blameless in this situation, it is truly our protagonist. (laughs) Meredith does a lot (laughs) of things wrong in this show over the course of however many years. But like. This one isn't one of them. <laughs> right. So it's problematic that he's directing his anger at Meredith, although even that is is understandable in a sense. But I I agree totally and completely with your point that what what did he what did he expect was going to happen? He left his wife yeah. in an, just such a typical Derek way. He left it completely open-ended. He didn't he didn't provide any resolution to the situation. He just ran away from it and passive aggressively avoided it until it being Addison Montgomery Shepard showed up (laughs) and said, what the hell? You know, it's like if you if you were so pissed and, and you were so over this relationship and and so in love with this new person, how how come you didn't serve the divorce papers? Why did Addison have to do it? You know, like, can you take even the slightest bit of responsibility for your life and your choices? Because Addison is at least starting or trying to take responsibility for hers. And Derek still isn't. Exactly. And and again, not recognizing how it's affecting other people. Mm-hmm. You know, he's so fucking self-involved and again, myopic that he can't see and refuses to acknowledge that this is affecting other people around him. Yeah. Right. That he's he's so wrapped up in how the divorce is affecting him that he's not thinking about, yes, it's 11 Christmases and it's also 11 of Addison's Christmases. Mm-hmm. Right. And meanwhile, Meredith is sitting in limbo. You know, I just think it's just he's just so self-centered and self-involved that he just cannot see any sort of ripple effects from you know, a cannonball in the pool. <laughs> right, right. And I think the Bailey conversation at the end of the episode, as you said, is is so indicative of this larger issue with Derek that he can't see beyond mm. his his own self-interest or his own interests, period. Look at you. You're like a girl. So your date? It's my husband. You're married? Ten years today. How come I didn't know you were married? You never asked. That's exactly right. He yep. never asks. And when he does... never. When he does ask or when someone is talking to him, he doesn't fucking listen. (laughs) Yep, exactly. 
(sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get into the medical fact of the week. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's really short. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Your medical fact of the week this week, dear listeners, is that porn is not utilized as a pain management tool for chronic pain. (laughs) That's not a thing. (laughs) I have Googled. I went on to Google Scholar like I was in grad school again, okay? I have Uh Googled every key phrase. I have turned up some weird shit. And you know what I haven't found? Any evidence that pornography assists in chronic pain management. So this storyline, and whoever thought it up, can just go straight to hell. That is the most satisfying medical fact of the week we've had to date. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest. I spoke, well, I spoke to my cousin's husband, who's, who's a professor of medicine and is a hospitalist in Denver. And mm. he, granted, he's, he's not a pain management specialist, but he says he's never heard of that. <laughs> so, no. Nope. Rejected. So, Out of guys, hand. Rejected. <laughs> not a real thing. <laughs> God. Debunked. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I was debunked. I was exactly, I was too. It is true that um, visual stimulation or distraction can serve as a way of um, distracting yourself from pain, right? Um, and visualization mm. is actually a tool that's recommended. You know, a non-medicated, non-invasive mm. technique of, of visualizing yourself before the chronic pain, for instance, and trying to be back in that body and experience what that was like. Um, mm. And you know, certain activities do certain activities and visuals do stimulate endorphins, which can subdue you know your pain receptors or whatever. But nothing specifically said, porn, for instance, would be great for this. So basically, what this comes down to is that all of the medical cases in this episode are bullshit. Yes, they're all crocs of shit. Just to to be clear. Perfect. Yep. Line of the week. Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. It's got to be. I mean. Meredith's monologue. it's the monologue. Mm. Meredith at the very end of the episode, just it, the best way that I can describe her sort of state of mind and her, in this monologue is that she's just sort of bubbled over. She's finally spilled over. You know, she's holding it all in. She's holding everything in and she just can't anymore. And she just is so sick of trying to hate Derek and she's sick of trying to deny that she loves him and she's just tired and she just wants to be with him and she's finally sort of come to terms with that and so she tells him you know she just kind of breaks the dam or you know like lifts the dam and lets it all out and and just is just sort of hoping that accepting that she loves him won't hurt as badly as trying so hard to hate him Mm -hmm. and so she delivers this sort of tragic beautiful a little bit embarrassing monologue (laughs) Yeah, I and I I mean it's embarrassing in a good in like a she knows it right she's totally cognizant that like this is sort of ridiculous, but she just she she just does it you know. Okay, here it is. Your choice. It's simple. Her or me. And I'm sure she's really great. But Derek, I love you. In a really really big. Pretend to like your taste in music. Let you eat the last piece of cheesecake. Hold a radio over my head outside your window. Unfortunate way that makes me hate you. Love you. So pick me. Choose me. Love me. It's the, it is the, the reason that I think of this as, as the, one of the seminal episodes of season two and really of Grey's as a whole is, of course, this monologue, because it is the monologue that people think of when they think of the show. And they think of specifically her closing lines of pick me, choose me, love me. And mm-hmm. it's the way her eyes are welling up with tears, her giant blue eyes, right, that are like almost transparent <sighs> and just. She's just so she's so plaintive in in this plea to him. And mm-hmm. and you you just sit there like who could possibly be left unmoved 
unmoved by by that declaration and by yeah. that plea. Um, and it really is for an episode that didn't feature, as you said, that didn't feature the strongest writing. Her monologue mm-hmm. is excellent. It's everything yeah. that we've come to love about the show and everything that we're going to continue to love about the show. Um, yeah, that's really where they put all their effort in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fine, because clearly I remembered this as a really great episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, it's a play on the motif of Grey's Anatomy so far, which is people burying their hearts in the elevator. So it's like, you know, her, her, her monologue functions in such a specifically Grey's Anatomy way. And it's incredibly effective and moving, which is going to make next episode all that harder. I already started watching part of it. It's so good. It's a really good episode. It's, it's the one with the train. Yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> oh, with Bonnie. Yeah. It's all happening. We're picking up pace here in the show. <laughs> all right. I think that's all we have for this week. Yes. Um, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Let's see. Yeah. As um, always, you know the spiel. Oh, yeah. You can find us on Tumblr, code hyphen grace, <laughs> tumblr.com. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on Twitter, which has been a really fun resource for us, um, at code underscore grays underscore. And you can listen to us on Podbean, where our show is actually um, hosted. They've been great. Um, and you can also find us on iTunes in the Native Podcast app. If you do listen to us on iTunes, consider, you know, subscribing, giving us uh, five stars. Like, yeah, just if you're in the mood to give away some stars. <laughs> And uh, (laughs) thanks so much. We will be back next week with episode six. See you next week. 